We're starting a brand new series today as we journey towards Easter. The series is going to be called Cross Reference, a little play on words here. And what we're going to do is we're going to reference the cross, okay? More specifically, what we're going to do is we're going to reference those words and phrases that Jesus spoke as he was on the cross, okay? What, what did they mean for the people that heard them then, and what do they mean to us today? And I believe that this is going to be a powerful series as we move into Easter. But before we dive into the rest of this uh, message today and go any further and I unpack uh, the first phrase that we're going to look at, let me begin the message by asking everybody, how many of you are looking forward to spring? Let me see. Raise of hands. Y'all looking forward? Yes, me too. Okay. Love the seasons changing and daylight savings time is just like right around the corner. Two Sundays, okay? Everybody get ready, okay? Two Sundays, okay? We'll have extra coffee. Um, I hate losing that hour of sleep, but man, I love the seasons change. Now, I would venture to say that everybody uh, gets a little bit excited about spring, because everybody looks forward to those trips. Um, everybody has that special place that they like to go during spring break or in the springtime. You know, it's finally time to get back out on the beach or go to the lake with some friends or just whatever that trip may be. We all have our favorite trips. I was thinking about this last week because my sister Megan, uh, Megan lives all the way down in Miami, Florida, which is pretty much spring break 24-7, like all year long, right? She's so close to all these beaches down there. But for spring break, what she does is she loves her favorite trip. She loads the family, four kids, everybody, and she takes a trip up to Hilton Head, okay, to the beach. She drives from the bottom of Florida, okay, uh, for a week at the beach at South Carolina. Now, I'm not knocking South Carolina at all, okay, but she could go anywhere. She could drive south to the Keys. She could go west to Naples. She could go across town to uh, Surfside Beach or whatever. But no, no, no. She wants to drive eight hours with the kids to another beach, okay? Which I just think is funny. But who knows? We're, we're supposed to go meet them um, for a day and celebrate my dad's 70th birthday. So we're going to go over there. And I haven't been to Hilton Head in a while. So she's probably on to something. But that is her favorite trip. So all that to say. We have our favorite trips that we like to take. So speaking of trips, okay, I'm setting you up here. How many of you would say that you have taken recently a guilt trip? Let me see, raise of hands. Guilt trip, see what I did there? Yep, okay. Guilt trips, sometimes we take too many guilt trips in life. Some of us might say, you know what, I've got frequent flyer miles when it comes to guilt trips. How many times do we load up our unnecessary baggage in life and we set off for an all-expenses-paid, very long guilt trip? And it, there's nothing to like about being on a guilt trip. Because the problem is, is that when we hold on to guilt, what it does, when we take those trips in our mind or we hold on to it for too long, what it does is it messes, it, it messes with our bodies, it messes with our relationships, it causes all kinds of fears to happen in life. We, we begin to worry about what if, the, you know, everybody found out what I did or, you know, what, what if people actually knew or, man, they would be so disappointed in me. So this morning, what do I going to do? So I'm going to talk about that guilt that we tend to hold on to a little bit. Okay, and as we start this discussion, I want you to know that God doesn't want you to feel guilty 
Okay, and the reason I say that is because there are so many people, you wouldn't believe how many people I run into that think that this is a spiritual thing to feel guilty all the time, like God actually wants it, right? And that's just not the case. God doesn't want us holding on to that guilt or to beat ourselves up for it for so long. The opposite is actually what we find in Scripture. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says that God wants to set us free from the bondage. Some of us know that verse that wants to hold us down. You see, Not only does God want you to be free from that guilt that weighs you down, I believe today, right here, right now, especially after taking communion this morning, that he wants you to walk out of here letting go of all the baggage. All that unnecessary baggage that we tend to carry. In fact, I want to remind you that as we journey towards Easter and as we focus on the cross, I want to remind you that he carried that load. He carried our burden. He carried your sin. He took it to the cross so that you could be forgiven, so that you wouldn't have to carry it anymore. So that you could know and understand the freedom that comes from being in a relationship with Jesus. In fact, the the cross reference that we're going to look at this morning during Jesus' final moments, the first phrase that we're going to look were the words of forgiveness. Now, these words were quite shocking when you think about it, and I'll explain more as we work through, but let's read this through together. It starts in Luke chapter 23. We read this. When they came to the place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross, and the criminals were also crucified, one on the right and one on the left. After this brutal day, let me just kind of talk about this a little bit. This brutal day that that included torture, it included whips, it included thorns pressed into his scalp. After driving the nails through his wrists, not his hands, they, they didn't drive the nails here. They had to drive them through their wrists so that way it could support the body as it hung. And even though they did all those things, we're not even scratching the surface of what happened to Jesus and what he went through. But after all of this pain, Jesus looks up and he says this in verse 34. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. Some scholars believe that these are the first words that Jesus spoke while hanging on the cross. These powerful words of forgiveness. So let's talk about this this morning. Let's talk about how we deal with guilt and our sin. But let's also talk about the power and the freedom that comes from being forgiven by Jesus Christ. And help us understand our problem that we have with guilt on one hand and forgiveness that comes through Christ on the other hand. I want to reference another story, okay? What I want to do is I want to leave the cross for just a minute. And I want to share a story of King David with you. Okay, it's a story that highlights the struggles that he went through and the relief that he found through God's forgiveness. And I think it can teach us so much. And I, I've taught from this story before, and I know some of you might be new, so I'm going to take you through those moments that led up to him getting rid of the guilt and understanding God's forgiveness. Okay, because it, I'm going to dive into David's story, but it's not David's story so much that we want to focus on. What we want to focus on this morning, though, is what he wrote in his journal. Okay, we find these expressive letters from David in the, in the Psalms. Some of y'all probably kept a journal growing up or a diary or something like that. But David did the same thing. He, he wrote down his intimate thoughts. And he wrote down in these Psalms his struggle with the guilt and the sin 
that he had committed. So in case you're unfamiliar with what I'm talking about, let me take you back. And let me kind of fill in the blanks here with what happened with David, okay? It all starts in 2 Samuel chapter 11. We begin the story with David, bored, not having much to do. He's at the palace, and he goes on to the roof for a nice afternoon stroll up high. And while he's up there, he turns into a kind of, um, how can I say this? A creeper, actually, Okay. While he's up there, that scripture says that um, David's a great guy. Now, David is actually characterized as a guy after, a man after God's own heart, right? And this story just shows us that anybody can struggle with sin, okay? Anyone can struggle with sin. So he's up high, he looks down, he sees the beautiful Bathsheba bathing, he sends his guards, he likes what he sees, so he sends his guards over to her house to bring her over to the palace, and yada, 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 she becomes pregnant. Okay, so... I'll let you fill in the audits. Um, little Seinfeld reference there. Now, the soap opera part of this story is that she's actually married. And her husband is off fighting a war in King David's army. So not only is David a peeping Tom, but he's kind of, he's kind of sleazy too. Taking advantage of her while her husband is away fighting this mission for David. So now he's in a pickle because... Nobody can find out that she's pregnant. That would be bad while her husband's gone. It'd look bad for both of them. And so then we begin to see how deadly this unconfessed sin in David's life becomes because David keeps this secret, and this secret begins to sink just deeper and deeper inside of him, and things get chaotic. I'm not even going to tell you what David tried to do, okay? I've already been through this before. If you want to find out, go read 2 Samuel chapter 11 of all the schemes that he put out there trying to get Uriah, her husband, to come back and to try to cover this whole thing up. But in the end, nothing really worked. So what he does is he tells the captain of his army to put Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, on the front line of the fighting. And when the fighting is at its fierce, to pull everyone back so that Uriah is killed. And after Bathsheba has mourned her husband, David takes her in to be his wife. They had the child together, and no one suspected anything, and everyone thought the child was his. Now, um, some of y'all have heard this story, and some of y'all might be familiar with the VeggieTales version of this story. Have y'all ever seen King George? How many of y'all have seen King George and the rubber ducky? Yes, I thought this was a very clever way of dealing with a very adult subject for kids when Larry decides to steal the rubber ducky from Junior. They even incorporated bath time into this, which I thought was pretty clever. But anyway, the real story, though, the real story is really quite remarkable. It's something that you might see in a movie. David almost gets away with a perfect crime. Almost. But he could not hide from God. Because after the child is born, God sends the prophet Nathan to call David out. Okay, now for Nathan, the prophet, this is a gigantic problem. I mean, you can't just walk into the king's court and accuse the king of doing something wrong. I mean, you know, how does that work? How would you even handle that? Walk into the courtyard, you know, and say, all right, everybody... Who in here hasn't sinned today? Uh, David, not so fast, not so fast. Not you, yeah, not, not you. You know, it's weird. It's hard. 
So Nathan comes up with this plan. And he tells this story. He tells the king a story about a, a simple man that had one lamb. And this man raised the lamb like one of his children. He shared his food with it. He let the lamb drink from his cup. He even, the lamb even fell asleep in this guy's arms. And you could see King David as he's telling this story. You can almost picture him sitting in the throne just kind of like wiping a tear from his eye and saying, this is the sweetest thing I've ever heard, right? And then Nathan, the prophet, continues and he says, one day a rich landowner with a huge flock decides to cook a meal for a visitor and instead of taking one of his own, He takes the simple man's one lamb and serves it for dinner. And David was furious. He jumps up out of the chair and he says, is this true? Like, did this really happen? If it is, you tell me who this person is. And Nathan looks back at David and says, you are that person. God has given you everything. And yet you took what was not yours. And David looks at Nathan, and he looks at everyone, and he confesses in 1 Samuel twelve thirteen, and he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And we find this admission, and we find this guilt that came from this moment in the life of David. So now that I've kind of reviewed his story a little bit again, let me do, well, let me do this now. Let's, let's move to his personal writings. Okay, let's move to the Psalms. Okay, and since he knew a few things about guilt and sin and suppressing the wrong in his life, he also knows a lot about forgiveness. Let's discuss how not to deal with guilt and then what to do with it when we decide not to carry that burden around any longer. So let's start with the wrong way to deal with guilt. Number one is this. If you got your message notes and you want to fill in these blanks, or if you got your um, app open and you want to fill these in, they're on there as well. Number one, here's the wrong way. This is what we tend to do sometimes is that we bury. We bury those things. This is what David wrote in Psalm 32.5. He says this, I stopped trying to hide my guilt. In the 32nd Psalm, when he's talking through the feelings that came in this situation, he said, I finally stopped trying to hide that guilt. He admits what he'd been doing for so long is pushing it down and suppressing it. And you know what's crazy? What's crazy is that this is what we're taught, right? We're taught to bury it. We're taught to not bring it up anymore, especially men. You know, you you got a problem, don't talk about it. Nobody wants to hear about your feelings. Stop being a crybaby, just deal with it, right? We even find ways to help us bury our guilt. See if this sounds familiar. You know, one way is that we tend to minimize it. And we tend to say things like, well, it's really not that big of a deal. It happened a long time ago. You know, who, who really cares? Another way that we deal with it and that we bury it is we try to rationalize it. We say things like, well, everybody else is doing it. Can't be that bad. Why are we making this such a big deal? But when we minimize it, And when we rationalize it, it's still sin. It still causes a problem. And what we're doing is we're just pushing it further and further down. Look at Proverbs 28, 13 says this. Whoever tries to hide his sin will not succeed, but the one who confesses his sin and leaves them behind will find mercy. The problem is, is that nothing really stays hidden. When we push that down, what it does is it just tends to boil up. And it just affects our relationship. It affects our routines. It affects our walk with God. 
But when we finally come to God and we ask him to forgive us, what he does is that he wipes away that sin and guilt. And it's such a relief. It's such a relief that it leaves us wondering, why did I bury this for so long? That's the first thing we do is that we bury it. The second thing we do is that we blame it. We blame it on other people. We blame it on other things. In fact, in David's writings, he says this in the 51st Psalm. He says, for I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. And what David is saying here is absolutely right. This is so true, okay? What he is, he is teaching us here is a strong theological point of original sin, right? This is what we say that we don't have to teach a child how to sin. They're just born knowing. Why? Because we live in a fallen world. And if you need to see how fallen this world is, we just turn on the news each and every day, right, with what's going on in the world around us. We are in a fallen world, and we are born into sin. That's true. But have you ever heard somebody use this as an excuse to blame it? In other words, what do you expect me to do, right? I'm just a person. You can't expect me to be perfect. I'm going to sin. What I found is that sometimes people will say things like this so that they don't have to take responsibility for what they've done and they want to shift the blame away from their... We love to shift the blame. And we try to shift the blame to everyone. It's almost like it's more common today than it's ever been. Nobody wants to take responsibility anymore. And to go along with this point, I've actually heard people try to shift the responsibility away from David and put it onto Bathsheba. Like... Where, why is she bathing where people can see her, right? Well, the text doesn't really support that any of this is her fault. As far as we know, David's the one that's sneaking a peek from a high building that nobody else can see from, right? I think I shared this a little while back, but I remember teaching this as a youth lesson one night when I was in youth ministry in Cordell. And one of the students tried to shift the blame from David and put it on Bathsheba and said, well, why couldn't Bathsheba just refuse David when he invited her over? And at that moment, one of my counselors, an older man weighing probably nearly 250 pounds, gets up, doesn't say anything, walks across the room to this young boy that probably weighs 85 pounds, puts both hands around his neck, and says, now try to move. And I was like, security? Security? Did, did anybody do a background check on this guy? <laughs> but his point was clear. Bathsheba couldn't do anything. This is not her fault. Make no mistake about it. David can't shift the blame. This is David's fault. He's in the wrong. You know, when I read stories like this, I start to think of my life. Where, where do I like to shift the blame? Maybe it's good sometimes to look back and see where I need to accept responsibility for what I've done. Because when I hold on to that guilt, hiding it, burying it, and blaming it, it doesn't get us anywhere. And then the third thing that we do is we beat ourselves up. Man, I'm the best at this. This is, this is my go-to right here. I do this all the time. We punish ourselves for what we've done. And we'll just dwell on it. I always have a habit of saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. I'll give you, I'll give you an example of this a little while back. Um, we had planned a surprise birthday party from a mother-in-law in Cordial. And everybody was in on it except for Mimi. And key word, this is a surprise, right? 
surprise party. We're driving over that evening, but in that morning prior to where I'm taking the girls to school, we got Mimi on the phone, we got her on speakerphone, and we're all saying happy birthday to Mimi, and then at the very end of the conversation, everybody's like, I love you, Mimi. Bye, Mimi. Happy birthday, Mimi. I said, we'll see you tonight, Mimi. Hung up. And I looked at everybody in the car and was like, I just messed that up, didn't I? <laughs> yeah, I'm in trouble, aren't I? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Called her immediately back and was like, I am so sorry, I ruined your surprise party. <laughs> but that's what I did. And then I beat myself up all day long knowing that I was the reason that this was not, you know, that there was no longer a surprise. We do that. David says in the Psalm 38, he says this, He says, my guilt, my guilt, what does it do? It overwhelms me. It's a burden that's just too heavy to bear. You know what that's like. I know what that's like. Because we know what it's like to beat ourselves up. And when we, this goes, and when we leave this unchecked in our life, man, it just influences how we feel. And it starts to affect us and what we think about God. Truth is, some of us are beating ourselves up over stuff that happened a long time ago. And it's still bringing destruction in your life. So if these things don't work, burying, blaming, beating ourselves up, what does work? What does Jesus want us to do with that guilt? Let me give you three things. Number one, we got to admit. We got to admit. We got to say the words, God, I've sinned. I made a mistake. I was wrong. You know, I think... We know what it's like to admit what we've done that's wrong and then feel that guilt lifted from us. David says this in the 38th Psalm. He says, I confess my sins. I am deeply sorry for what I have done. And I believe that when he says these words and he confesses and he admits what has happened, that weight begins to lift. So here's a suggestion Going along with this time of year, as we prepare for the spring season, maybe it's good to do a little spring cleaning in our lives, right? We know what it's like to go through spring cleaning or just to clean and go through the house and pick up items here and there and just all over and just hold it, look at it and say, you know, I really don't need this anymore. Maybe we need to do this with some of the junk in our life, some of the mistakes that we've made that we're continuing to hold on to. Some of that stuff that needs to be taken out, like lust and fear and lies and manipulation and gossip, to admit the destruction that it plays and just clean it. Clean it out. Get rid of it. Admit it. Admit it and see if you can let go of that weight. Maybe you don't really have to go through on a search for too long in doing your spring cleaning because you got something that's at the forefront of your life right now. Why aren't you taking it to God? And admitting it, confess them one at a time. And then move to point number two, we got to accept. This offsets the blame game that we were talking about earlier. we got to accept personal responsibility for what's happened in our lives. We're no longer hiding it, we're no longer blaming it, we're no longer rationalizing it. What we're doing is we're admitting that we made a mistake and we are accepting full responsibility. And in the 51st Psalm, David, you begin to see that he has this conversation with God where he's not talking to anybody else. He's not talking about how he wronged the prophet Nathan or his people or Bathsheba or even what he did to Uriah. He's talking to God and he's like, God, 
I have wronged you. This is my fault. And I accept full responsibility for it. He says this in the 51st Psalm. He says, against you, God, and you alone have I sinned. I have done what's evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. And again, he admits, he accepts, and some of that weight begins to lift off of him. You know what another great way to help us accept responsibility for what we've done is to tell God and then tell another person. Tell someone else that we're close to. Now, now let me clearly say that you don't have to confess your sins to anyone else to be forgiven. Uh, Jesus Christ offers the forgiveness that we need. We don't have to go through anyone. But let's also remember that we are meant to do life in a community. You can't do life alone is what we teach here at the Ridge, right? And when we confess our sins to one another, not only are we accepting responsibility for what we've done, but we're also giving ourselves a chance to receive encouragement from the people that love us and care for us. In fact, James, the brother of Jesus, he puts us this this way in James 5.16. He says, make this your common practice. Okay, not just something you do once in a while, but man, make this common in your life. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you can live together whole and healed. I love that. You wanna live whole and healed? Confess to one another. And when you confess, what comes next? Pray. Confess to one another and then pray for each other. Then the last thing we got to do, point number three, is that we just got to ask. We just got to ask God. Finally, I want you to see and feel the relief that comes from David when he gets to this step. In the 32nd Psalm, he says this, Finally, I confessed all my sins to you. Finally, you can hear the relief in his voice when he came out with it. And he said, I stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord. And he asked for forgiveness. And then what does it say? And you forgave me. And all my guilt is gone. You forgave me. And all that guilt that I've been holding to, that I've been bearing, that I've been blaming, that I've been beating myself up for, all my guilt is gone. That's crazy. Think about everything that David did. If anybody had a right to feel guilty and to hold on to it, And to let it just eat him alive, it was David. And some of us, in our brokenness, and our sinfulness, would probably look at David and say, well, you deserve it. But man, he gets to this point where he confesses. And he understands God's forgiveness in this moment. And he says, my guilt is gone. It's no longer with me. So let me take you back to the cross. Okay, let's cross-reference. Let's go back and reference across. And in the middle of everything that's happening to Jesus, after they had beaten him, nailed him to the cross, scourged him with the whip, put that bloody thorn on his head, gambled for his clothing, mocked, ridiculed him, and on and on and it goes. And in the middle of all this, they look up and they hear Jesus say those words, Father, forgive them. And then as soon as Jesus died, darkness covered the land. The ground shook. The curtain 
in the temple tore in two. And when the supervising officer saw what happened, here's what he said. He said, this man really was God's son. There's this moment where he looked up and he realized what he had done and who this was. And imagine how he must have felt. Imagine what him and the other soldiers that were around him must have felt in this moment to realize what was going on and who this Jesus really was. The question is, would they remember those words that Jesus spoke when he said, Father, forgive them. That he offered them, even them, even those men that did this to him, even in that moment, He was offering, not guilt, but forgiveness. That's amazing grace. And that kind of grace and forgiveness is offered to you and me. So listen, I don't know what you're holding on to in life. But there has to come a time in all of our lives, especially as we journey towards Easter. Easter is all about the resurrection. That we realize that we have been forgiven and that we can't keep hiding and blaming and punishing ourselves that gets us nowhere but instead what we're asked to do is admit accept and ask Jesus Christ to remove that burden of guilt and when you do you'll be amazed at the weight that's lifted let's pray together God we thank you that there's freedom in your son Jesus God forgive us for the sin and the guilt that we hold on to. <laughs> There's really no reason for us to bury, blame it, or beat ourselves up for it. We, if we learn anything from David, God, it's that. God, the reason you came and died on the cross was to be that perfect sacrifice that would take away our sin. And God, we know that the Bible says that when we admit, accept, and ask for forgiveness, that you promise to remove that sin from our lives and free us from that burden. So God, I just pray. I pray for everyone here today that they would find the freedom that comes from knowing that they are forgiven in you. God, we love you. And we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Amen.